This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best fancy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski, and with me is not only the fantasy hockey robot Brian Com, but a special guest. But first, Brian, why don't you go ahead and say hello? Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. Hello, mystery guests who shall not be named until Elon gives a proper introduction. Elon, I can tell by your quickened pace in the yes and the introduction that you can't you can't wait another second to get into this and you are just super pumped about our specialist guest ever yeah (laughs) yeah my heart is beating right now but i'm trying to keep it cool because we've got our most famous ever person to appear on keeping carlson on the call right now he's a canadian professional poker player he's won six world series of poker bracelets two world poker tour championship titles he was named the global poker index best poker player of the decade He is the second biggest live tournament poker winner of all time. This guy's good at poker, if you haven't guessed it. He was the World Series of Poker Player of the Year in 2004 and in 2013. He was inducted to the Poker Hall of Fame. And most importantly, he was Boston Rob's poker trainer in the hit 2007 series, Robin Amber Against the Odds. Yes, you are right. I'm talking about Daniel Negreanu. He's here on the show. Just to make things clear, I'm a good poker player, yes. Much better fantasy hockey guru, for sure. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. So... Our listeners are in for a treat because Brian and I, we've been wanting to do for a while an episode about fantasy hockey strategy. All the little, because we talk about so many specific players, but we wanted to get, you know, take a step back and really get into the little tips and tricks that we have. And why not bring a strategy expert like yourself? This is very exciting. Maybe you could let the listeners know, like, obviously they know about your poker credentials, but like, what's your fantasy hockey background? So I've been in fantasy hockey before it was cool. I'm in the same league uh, with the same group of 20 guys, well, for the most part, since 1996. Um, And we do a keeper league. We've changed our rules over the years, but we used to draft as young as like, I I started scouting a kid that was nine years old named Jace Howerlook, who, uh, you know, he's actually in the farm. I've I've actually met him and hung out with him since. It's a little bit creepy scouting nine-year-olds. But, um, you know, like Crosby went when he was 14 in our league, Tavares at 14. We made some changes to the rules, but just to give you a sense of like how in-depth we look at not just the players that are in the league now, but also prospects. What did that scouting involve, scouting a nine-year-old? How did you do that? Well, I remember seeing videos of him and he broke Gretzky's record in the same like league in Branton or something like that. And I'm like, well, hey, if this kid can break Gretzky's records, like maybe that's a thing. He didn't turn out to be a, a guy who's likely to, you know, be a top six player, but you know, he's got potential. 
that's dedication that I'm not sure. Uh, like, I think NHL teams, certain ones anyway, can use that sort of dedication in their scouting departments. Okay, so you're you're super experienced and you, like, you would trade all your poker credentials in for, like, some ultimate fantasy hockey championship? Uh, it is. <laughs> that's hard to say. I don't know about that. I have won. So this league's been around since I said 1996, 20 teams. I've won three times, which is second most. We do have one guy in our league who is Mr. Dynasty guy. He's won like seven or eight times and everyone else is just, you know, eating dust. But yeah, it's, it's like a major passion for me. I spend thousands of hours. I listen to your show, you know, which is great. And I, I appreciate the fact that you guys do a good job of not just having opinions, but backing them up with, you know, actual data rather than just guessing. Yeah, that's what we try to do. It definitely leads to some arguments because sometimes, you know, you just look at the player, you look at Tuka Rask, you go, how can you not want to draft him? And then Brian goes, well, actually, according to his save above expectation, like, Jaroslav's a lack of better goalie. And we get into all those fun arguments. But yeah, that's the best way to play, right? And that's, I guess, how NHL teams can be successful. And we're going to also talk now about, okay, let's get into the strategy because that's obviously the key thing in fantasy. Like you could be great at player valuation, but still be bad at fantasy because at the end of the day, this is a strategy game. You're playing against other players. Potentially, like, you know, we have our Keeping Carlson League and I'm sure in your league also, everyone is smart. Everyone knows what they're doing in terms of knowing which players are good and which players are bad. So you have to get into figuring out what are the moves you can make. So maybe if you get started, let's talk about drafting. That's what's coming up. Everyone's excited about their drafts. Do you generally do auction drafts or snake drafts? Well, I look at, you know, snake drafts as checkers and then, you know, auctions are chess because they're so much more fun. I don't even bother with regular snake drafts because I find them pretty monotonous and boring. Like people just come in with a list and they go, okay, next guy on the list, let's take him. But with auctions, you have to do a much better job of evaluating talent, figuring out like how to put all the pieces together. And you have different strategies there. You can go real top heavy by taking the, you know, two, three top superstars, and then the rest of your team is maybe going to be a little bit weaker. So, or, or you could go with just kind of a well-balanced team or with no real sort of significant weaknesses. So it really depends on so many things in terms of like how, like say, for example, you come in with a strategy where you're going to get Crosby and all of a sudden the bidding goes insane. You're like, okay, all right, we're going a different direction then because these people have lost their mind. I'm a huge advocate for auction drafting. So, so I'm happy to hear that you're on board with it. So, I mean, you detailed a few of the possible strategies, what do you go for? Like, are you a studs and duds kind of guy? Or are you a, a, a like w- sit out the first 10 rounds and see how the market gets set or, or just go flat value all across your roster? How do you like to play it? Well, so I'm my, my main league is I'm in a keeper league. So it's really depends upon where my team is at. And right now I'm tanking. So that's going to like definitely affect my strategy where I'm looking at just kind of like younger pay- players with potential, but as a general strategy, I think if you are well studied and you really have a deep understanding of like depth players, it really makes sense to go for like the high end studs. Because if you feel like you can do a good job on a weekly, depending on what league you're in, if you can like do a lot of good weekly pickups and things like that and insert different guys, there's a lot of guys at the bottom tier that are interchangeable for the most part. Right. So I don't think it makes a lot of sense to have like a bunch of like above average players. You want, like if, if you can, you know, to get like two to three studs or something. And then, you know, if you are crafty, go ahead and um, pick up some, you know, sleepers here and there. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I find this is a strategy that I've learned somewhat recently because I used to like go into an auction draft or even a snake draft. Well, a snake draft's a little different, but like with an auction draft, you know, and I'd want to have a really good team, be happy and look at my team at the end. But then there's always so many exciting free agents that pop up at the start of the year that no one really expected to be so great. Like last year, you have Rantanen and Barzil who went undrafted in a lot of leagues. They both ended up being above 80 point players. So I definitely liked your strategy of just spend a decent amount of money on getting like sure thing top guys. And then even if you don't 
don't get such great players at the bottom of your roster, trust that, you know, as a listener of Keeping Carlson, we'll give you some tips of some good players that you can pick up along the way to make up for maybe having a not such great roster at the beginning. Like, I love picking up free agents. And obviously, I guess it depends about some of your league settings, like how many acquisitions you're allowed per year and things like that. But I'm, I'm with you. I like the studs and duds. And I also wanted to ask you about when, let's say, like you gave the situation where Crosby's getting bid up so much. I generally like to make a bunch of tiers for my different positions. So like if I know Crosby's going for a lot, then I'll know I'll forget about him. And maybe I'll try to get another center who I think is going to be similar, but maybe I could get him for cheaper. Do you do any prep like that when you go into your drafts of splitting players into tiers? I Yeah, I have like an insanely nerdy spreadsheets where I actually have color-coded groups and I do this for the junior draft as well as, you know, the main draft and kind of group players. And just to echo, you know, what you were saying before about picking up players, like so much of what a player's uh, potential is going to look like is is assignment, right? So if you end up on Connor McDavid's wing, you could be a guy like Jujkar Kaira. You know, if he somehow yeah. ended up on Connor McDavid's wing, well, this guy's a player all of a sudden in terms of production. So a lot of the time people look at like who is the best player. It's less relevant than what team are they playing for, what system are they in, and what what, you know, what assignment are they getting? Yeah. And then so how about your goalie strategy? Are you someone who in in a draft, because I mean, in an auction or a snake, it's sort of you have to make a move early or wait to try and get a value guy later on. So seeing the way you sort of treat your skaters and you're happy to go full blown on your stars because you you trust that you can get some guys later on for cheap. uh, Are you the same way with goalies? So in my main league, we do team goalies because for a lot of guys, it's, it's more it's kind of annoying to like have a starter and then he doesn't play this, you know, he gets, you know, spot starts or whatever. So it's a little frustrating. So we just use like, if you have the New York Rangers goalie, whoever plays for the New York Rangers works in that environment. But as for like doing typical drafts where you have goalies, I think it's a big mistake to draft too highly because as you guys know, and you know, you did this in your smorgasbord episode, which is like, it's such a crapshoot sometimes where um, it's less about how good the goalie is and just how, you know, well the team is playing. So you're essentially buying into the team defense um, in addition to, a, a goalie so and it, it, look how quickly it changes from year to year you got a guy like Carey Price who has all he's been considered the stalwart but he's playing behind like an absolute crap team and there's just no way he can post good numbers and had like a horrendous year what does that mean this year does that mean Carey Price is no longer a good goalie well he's, I don't think he's draftable because of who he's playing for so I think that you ju- you really want to like and if you again you, you can pick up goalies and release goalies in your league I think again you want to like look at schedules and look at matchups for the week and see like who the team, who, you know, who they're playing that week and maybe, you know, pick up a lot of good goalies on the waiver wire. I wouldn't waste too many resources on goalies. That's so interesting. Like you uh, sort of came in with that analogy of how auction drafts are like chess while snake drafts are like checkers. But I feel like I've said that exact same thing on the show about team goalies being checkers versus having to worry about specific goalies in leagues. So it's very interesting that you go that way. Like, uh, I feel like a lot of the fun is actually trying to figure out, oh, is this backup about to usurp the starter? But you guys, I guess, just forego that whole discussion. Well, the, we, the league that we do, we do head-to-head. So every night that there's six or more uh, NHL games, we, we, like, ice a roster. And for a lot of guys, they have jobs. They can't necessarily be, like, always watching <laughs> every single day to see if their goalie is starting or not. So it just, it, for them, it makes it a little bit easier, and they don't feel as, like, you know, annoyed with the fact that they have no goalie playing when, you know, they should. Also, I really like this suggestion that you gave about looking at the schedule. I think that's also a really good drafting schedule. Like, let's say if you're in a league with two goalie roster spots and you want to, say, pick a third goalie, if you could get a goalie playing on those off nights, then you're going to get so much more value out of your goalies overall. Like, you want to minimize the number of games where you have to sit a goalie that you'd love to get in, but just, you know, because of the schedule, you have to drop them. So I love going for those 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday goalies. I think that's really good. And I think also similarly, and I'm curious to get your thought on this. Another strategy I like is let's say if I have two starting goalies, I feel like you want your third goalie to be like one of those really high upside backups. Like we had a question recently about should he draft Markstrom or Reimer and it was for his third goalie. So I feel like, yeah, Markstrom will get more starts, but if, if it's your third goalie, you're barely going to play him as opposed to Reimer who on Florida, who's supposed to be a really good team next year. You'd think that he would, when he does play, even if he doesn't get the majority of the starts, when he does play, you're going to get so much value. So like, how do you spread out your goalies in your league in terms of starters versus backups? Well, yeah, it would, it would seem crazy to me to have a third string goalie. That's a starter. I mean, there's only 31 teams in the league. That's like, unless, well, I mean, if you're in a 12 team league or whatever, um, I guess theoretically you could like have, you know, pretty close to a start on every team, but it seems like you don't necessarily want starters on like, I don't want Craig Anderson, you know, I don't want, you know, starters on really, really bad teams. Cause you just, just the stats are going to blow up in your face. So I think you, I agree with you in the sense that like, you're better off like looking at someone like a Grubauer in Washington, or at least before he was traded, uh, but high end backups that are going to get spot starts on back-to-back nights and things like that. It makes a lot more sense to me than having like a really bad third string goalie. I, uh, by the way, I am a total proponent of team goalie systems. I liked in your answer, you said, well, like people in our league have jobs. Like they can't like, like it is a full-time thing that a lot of us do. Like Elon, you're one of the best at it. Like tracking, you know, what time teams hit the ice for practice, you know, which beat writer to follow. Who's going to tell you which goalie leaves the net first or which one's practicing in the starters net or the backups net. Yeah, I mean, I have a job, but also maybe I'm not so productive at my job during certain times of the day during fantasy hockey season. That's a better way to phrase it. Some people want to be productive at their jobs. Yeah, luckily for me, I could sort of work, you know, a little bit later if I need to, to make up for maybe the least productive day. But hey, if you find out that a beat writer is saying that, I don't know, Semyon Varlamov is injured, uh, you know, like you got to be ready to pounce on that. Yeah, but if you have the Colorado goalie, you could just relax. And also, like, some some teams, it's not fair. Like, some teams don't announce their starter yeah, until yeah. they take the ice for warm-ups. Other teams will announce it. I mean, I, I guess you don't really get a day before anymore, but around, say, 10 or 11 in the morning of their local time. Yeah, so Daniel, have you ever had it where you were playing in an important poker tournament, but then you saw some (laughs) pop-up on your phone, a notification that like a star goalie got injured and you need to make a move right away? Have you ever made fantasy hockey roster changes while on TV? Always. That (laughs) happens constantly. Less less so for goalies, because as I said, we use team goalies, but like with players, I get, I have alerts with like the score, which is a great app, which gives you little alerts here and there. Um, And I'm checking Roto World and all these different sites and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm always looking because we we tight we try to have our lineups in like an hour before games. So like typically, you know, that 30 minutes before the deadline, I'm searching everything to make sure, um, you know, that I don't have a player in there that's like healthy scratched. And when you have a bad team and you got guys like Martin Frick and Neil Yakupov on your team, which I had <laughs> I last year, it's uh. like okay, half the games you're just like guessing whether or not they're going to be a healthy scratch or not. I'm so glad to hear that you were you're holding a candle for Neil Yakupov. I think mine is finally extinguished after this past season, but but I I was right there with you. I mean, Brian, you'd assume it has to be extinguished considering he's going to be playing in the KHL (laughs) next year. Well, no, you might want to, but oh well, Daniel, are you going to keep him? Like, do you have room for him on your farm team? Should he pull like a Valerie Nichushkin or dare I say Ilya Kovalchuk and return to the league, or more like a Radulov, I guess, return to the league or a Hoodler? There's a few guys who have done it. Is, Is will you hold on to Yakupov in case he does? Yeah, I could make room for him, but I will not. He is a headache. <laughs> he is just, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's crazy because when you have somebody that is the first overall pick in the NHL, 
very rarely does not does that not pan out to at least like a, you know a competent hockey player and he really hasn't and he's had so many opportunities and I just think it's over for him and I agree that you know he's got a year or two before he's in the KHL how early did you buy in on him like was this like a an, an example of like a 16 year old draft pick that you made no, he wasn't mine, but he was available because other people gave up on him. And huh. like I said, my team is kind of in the dumps right now. So I'm like in rebuild mode. I'm like, okay, I'll take a flyer on a guy who, you know, has first overall upside clearly, and maybe he can get things right. Um, it certainly didn't work out last year, and I'm I'm probably never going to gamble on him again. <laughs> it was it was worth a shot. So so credit for that. Uh, okay, back to an, I have another drafting question for you, and, and like this is something that NHL teams and fantasy managers work through at their draft tables there's there's a strategy of best player available so draft regardless of position or you draft for positional need and of course some positions have uh, a little more scarcity than others in terms of the number of elite players there's usually more elite centermen than there are defensemen available like that so how do you take that sort of factor that value over replacement factor into account at the draft table are you a best player available guy are you looking at position specifically Um, well, I think it's important depending on like the position, like you said, with centers, there's just a lot of great centers, uh, you know, that have upside, but you know, sometimes if like, if I, if if there aren't a lot of like top left wings available, then I definitely want to grab something up there and do the same kind of strategy we talked about earlier, which is, you know, look to the waiver wire to make some pickups, um, and you know, see which guys have like good schedules for the week. So I would definitely for them, I, as going in, I'm certainly more towards like uh, drafting for position. And, you know, once I feel comfortable in all those spots, then I, I switch to a, a best, you know, best player available. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, the value of a replacement is just so important. Like if you have a center position available on your team, there's going to be so many guys in free agency, just like you said. But like if you have a defense position available, like usually the best defenseman in free agency in like a standard, not even so deep league might only be like a 30, 35 point guy. So I definitely think there's a lot of value in thinking about position. But yeah, once you once everyone's in a similar tier, then obviously you just go with who you think has the most upside. I got to ask, OK, let me know if it's too hokey to ask you like, oh, how is this like poker or whatever? I'll stop because I have some questions for you about that. But like when you're doing an auction draft, just getting back to that, you know, you're making bids. It's kind of like if you have a poker hand and you're deciding how much to, you know, put in for your hand, like how much to raise all of that. Like, do you find any things like people will get mad at me if I didn't at least ask you one question like that. So do you see any similarities between doing an auction draft and playing poker? Big time. Absolutely. Like that's one of the reasons I fly to Toronto for my draft every year is because I want to be there live. So I can actually get a sense of my opponents like, or like my competitors in terms of like, how interested are they in this guy? And one of my favorite things to do, and it's very risky and it's probably not all that smart is like to push a guy past what is reasonable value. The problem with that is sometimes in an auction, you get stuck with them when they stop. So you have to have a really good read um, on, on how much resources the person's willing to pay. Um, And then I think it's, there's a lot of poker involved. Like you're essentially bluffing in those spots. You're always looking for value. You're looking for maximum value. You're sometimes thinking about, okay, well, depending on how you do it, like we, we, you know, you, we throw out a player. Well, what's the best strategy if you have a sleeper? Should you throw them out early? Should you throw them out late? And then you have to look at, okay, how many resources do you have left versus, you know, the other guys? And, and, and like, I do auction drafts, not just with hockey, but also with like fantasy poker and everything like that. So I find them to be very strategic and a lot like poker because there's body language tells. Like you can just tell sometimes when someone's like, how fast did they respond? You know, you said 14 and they go 15. You know, you say 16 and then they pretend to pause and go, okay, 17. Yeah. He's probably going to 25, you know, but uh, it's, it's, I think it's a lot of fun to do that. 
Yeah, okay. So so forgive me if this is too elementary or too special sauce a question, but you know, you're talking about reading other people and and finding these little hints and of course it's a huge part of poker. Um is there like a general tip that you can offer anyone uh, just to guide them towards being able to discover or uncover a certain person's tells? Because I'm, I, they're, they're different for everyone, of course. But what's a good like path to at least start down to start trying to figure out when a person is bluffing or when they're telling the truth? So that's a good question, actually. And a lot of people typically look for like, what's the magic secret? Well, really, it's observation. So you're looking for tendencies. You're looking for what people are doing. Are they doing the same thing every time? Like, I'll notice the guy who's waiting on a player. He, you know, he throws him out early, doesn't bid at all, waits for the bid to go up. And then he sneaks in, you know, and is like, he throws in a bid. And I know this player, when he does that, he's going all in on that player, right? So, you right. know, once you, once you have that tendency on your opponents and you know, like, what they typically do, what a pause means. For some people, when they pause and they think, they're actually crunching numbers and going, can I afford this guy? For other guys, they're just like what's what we call moon bluffing, which is pretending that they're like right at the cusp of what they're willing to pay, but they're really willing to go so much more. So really, it's just about observing and looking for any sort of patterns or differences from normal behavior. I'm so curious to know what my tells are. Like, I'm certain I have them. I wonder if... Uh... Uh, if we could ever get in the same room, how quickly you'd be mm. able to pin one down. Well, you could hire Daniel just like Boston Rob did back in Boston Rob and Amber against the odds. Can I ask you about that, by the way? How awesome was it to hang out with Rob and Amber, Survivor royalty? <laughs> I love Rob is such a great guy. He's like, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met, honestly. And like, obviously when you're on the show Survivor, you're going cutthroat. You're going to do some lying. You're going to, you're going to do whatever it takes to, uh, you know, win the game. But like, Oh, aside from outside of the game, he's like a trustworthy, honorable, like really good friend. And I was like, it was a fun experience and he still plays poker. And, you know, he's, he's at a lot of the different charity events and stuff like that. And I, you know, I always root for him, but uh, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun doing some reality TV. He really wanted to learn. Like, you know, when you do reality TV, sometimes they kind of like want to stage things. He's like, no, no, I really want, I really want to learn. This isn't fake for me. And so, you know, he's taken his poker pretty seriously since. Yeah, I loved it. Those scenes when he's like playing and you're sort of like watching and then afterwards you give him the feedback. But he's okay, people probably want to hear more about fantasy hockey, not this show that maybe not that many people watch. But I was watching every episode. Okay, so we were talking about the people side of it and trying to read people in the draft. I guess another big part where you're interacting with people is when you're trying to work out trades. And I always think it's like, that's like a really tricky thing in fantasy that I think is probably not my strongest suit. Like, let's say I know, like, let's say we are advising on the podcast that Crosby is slumping right now. So now would be a great time to try to buy low. And there's a whole different strategy discussion of deciding who's the players you want to try to trade for and who are players you might want to trade because maybe they're doing better than you'd expect but just aside from that once i've made that decision that okay i'm going to try to like approach the crosby owner and try to get like a good deal for crosby like oh he's old now look he didn't even get a point the last few games or like carlson last year when he had that random 10 game pointless streak like what is your uh, method for approaching someone when you you want to try to make a trade with them yeah, well, if you came to me and wanted my player and we're talking about how bad he was, that would raise suspicion in my mind. I'm like, okay, he really wants this player badly, doesn't he? Um, I have a few yeah, key exactly. rules. Yeah, I have a few key rules with trading. First and foremost, like, depending upon, like, are you going to be in this league with this group of players long term? Or is this just like a one year thing where you're never going to see them again? If it's a one year thing and you're never going to see them again, you can be as cutthroat as you need to be. But if you are going to be playing with the same types of people over, an, like, over a longer period, I think it's really important to become a good trade partner where you make, you, you, you make trades where the other person feels like they got a win out of it. And one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is when they do fleece somebody in a trade and they really rob them, like gloating about it is a huge mistake. 
Because when you're seen as that guy that's robbing people, now people are going to be far less willing to negotiate with you or even to trade with you. So you always want to like leave a trade where the other person feels like they got the best of it. And if anything, downplay a little bit of a hustle and be like, yeah, I think you got me on that trade. Good job. But hey, you know, or, or, or if you, it somehow works out where, you know, you clearly got the best of the trade, you know, just give them a little bit of condolence and be like, yeah, that was just unlucky. Cause you know, I, I couldn't have projected that either, but seemed like a good trade at the time. You know, you don't want to like, you, you don't want to be seen as like the crusher in trades because then people are afraid to deal with you. So would this be too crazy to like maybe lose a trade on purpose every once in a while? To, like this seems like a very like poker bluffy thing to do. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah, I don't know if you, you necessarily want to like really lose a trade, but I would say that like instead of like trying to squeak out like, you know, every little inch of value, you know, maybe sometimes once in a while when somebody makes you a first offer, just accept it without always having to counter with something to just like try to squeeze them. And when you do that, people see you and, you know, sometimes people are going to make you a first offer that's really, really good for you anyway. And you could, but you could actually play that off as being like, you know what, I, I like trading with you. You seem like a fair trader. That's a fair offer. I'll go ahead and take it, you know, instead of um, trying to like finagle and nickel and dime people. I like that. Like the after trade is really important. It's a bit theatrical, but you do sort of to keep good relations with the people in your league. It's very wise to to do damage control and manage that thing. Although I've found myself being a little too fervent or not even aggressive, but maybe a little overly assertive in defending deals I've made. And I feel like that that comes off making me look even worse, like if I'm tr- just trying to convince everyone, no, this was totally fair. Can't you all see? And then, uh, I mean, clearly, I, it feels like the more I defend it, the guiltier mm-hmm. I seem. Well, Brian, last year in the cupful, <laughs> our Keeping Carlson League, Brian made the trade. Daniel, he, uh, I think we mentioned on the podcast, like he traded John Tavares and got like McKinnon and Eric Carlson. It was like such an amazing <laughs> trade. And yeah. then every, and he ended up winning. And it's like against the patrons, the people who are like giving us money to support the <laughs> podcast. Everyone was so mad at him. It was so um, funny. Hey, look, like Daniel said, cutthroat. You got to do what you got to do. And at the time, it was Carl. I mean, look, and here I go, right? I can totally justify. Like, I can justify, I would not have traded it if I were the Carlson owner, but I still saw it as justifiable. And everyone in tier one at the time found it reasonably justifiable too. no protests. No, I recall a couple of people complaining. Anyway, so Daniel, I'm curious to know, like, what, when you play, like, are you a big trader? Like, do you make lots of trades or do you tend to do lots of, uh, like, free agent adding or, like, a mix of both? Like, I'd be curious to know how you play. Well, as I said, you know, my league is a keeper league and we have, like, a very extensive farm system with, like, 20 players on our farm. So, most of the teams like that I like to build are through the draft. And I spend a lot of time, you know, on Dauber prospects, which I know you guys work with and stuff, um, focusing on that. But as far as trades go, we, um, yeah, I love doing, I love trades depending where I'm at. Like, uh, part of what we can trade is we can trade draft picks as well for the future. So, you know, uh, if, if my team is in contention, a lot of the trades that I'm looking at are going to be like, you know, high priced free agent rentals that are not going to be kept long-term by my, you know, opponents or whatever for draft picks or vice versa, you know, like going into this draft coming in this year my team is really, really bad. So I will probably, I will probably be able to, in the auction, have enough resources to get Crosby and maybe even Ovechkin. And I'm going to flip them both for future, you know, assets and first round picks and things like that. So those are the kind of trades I really enjoy making, you know, um, and you can always find partners because some teams are like, you know, really, really like primed to, you know, you know, win right now, and then they're going to want whatever assets you have, and then others are rebuilding. So for me, I think like keeper leagues are just so much more fun than one year leagues. I still do them too occasionally, but I, I'm far less engaged than I am on my like team because the players I have, they're like my babies. You know, they're they're my children. 
Well, some of them literally are children, if you've been looking at them since they were nine years old. <laughs> so I guess, like, I, I know we're supposed to be talking about strategy here, but I'm sure everyone's so curious to know, like, who do you have on your farm team right now that you're really excited about? Okay, so like I said, my team is really bare bones bad right now. But the couple guys that um, really stick out are Sebastian Ajo, who had a really you know good, good second season. And the other one, which I think is primed for a real breakout, and I think he's going to be part of a second line in Philadelphia that is going to do some damage. And he really did well down the stretch the last 20 games. And that's Nolan Patrick. Um, yeah. he, he did start slow, but don't forget, this guy has had – he had like a face injury. He had like weird disease face. He had like <laughs> shoulder injury. He's like, he's like a broken human being. If he can keep it together in the off season and actually get stronger and, and practice with the team, um, uh, the, the Philadelphia, the problem with them is like, you just don't know who's going to play that coveted Wayne Simpson's like slot because you have him, you have Nolan Patrick, you have um, a lot of assets uh, on that power play. So him getting power play time is crucial to his results. But I still think he has, you know, I, I could see 60, 65 points from Nolan Patrick this year. Do you think that Patrick and Wayne Simmons are like friends because they both went through so many injury issues over the past year? It's something to bond over. I don't know because Nolan Patrick's taking up his role. I think Wayne Simmons is like, if you look at that roster, Philadelphia's pretty deep at forward right now. And, uh, you know, Wayne Simmons, you know, he's, he's a little bit older now. Um, we don't know necessarily like if he, if he has a future in Philly, I don't know. So he might be resentful because he could get kicked off the top power play and, you know, have people, t- you know, taking up, uh, that valuable uh, front front of the net space, or you know, Philly might actually do something unique, which is have two guys in front of the net, which they've definitely you know fiddled with a little bit, which um, is is definitely unique, and not a lot of teams do that. Yeah, not only does, does Simmons need to work his way back from an injury, but now he has to do it with James Van Riemsdyk in the way. And like you were saying, there's this whole top power play situation that needs to be sorted out. Can they both play like slightly away from their normal net front positions, but still both be net front guys? There's a lot. There's a lot to watch in Philly, and I think they're actually probably one of my my top five interesting teams to watch next season. We'll get to another one later in the show. I bet I bet no one can guess who that might be. <laughs> um, okay, how about let's let's move on to like so you you've drafted your team. We've talked about trading. When you're looking at uh, at players who have come out with hot starts in the season, uh, like someone's just ripping it in the first week or two. How quick are you to jettison a roster player that you drafted to try and add the hot hand? Uh, l- like, let's say, like, for example, last year I held on to Kyle Ocposo for like, I'm extreme. So it was like three months when normally, you know, four or five weeks would have been the reasonable person's patience level. But in any case, uh, you know, I held him instead of adding some more exciting players. Are you someone who holds on too long or are you like no mode? I mean, you said your players are all your children, but but are there some that you you're okay to ditch that to cut those emotional ties with. Yeah, no, it's I'm speaking of Kyle Ocposo, I had him for like 10 years and it can be difficult to, you know, when you do fall in love with players to like say goodbye to them. But I do think it's important to have like at the bottom of your roster, as I said, if you're building your team with studs and kind of like fill-ins, those fill-ins should be pretty interchangeable pretty quickly. So, you know, if, if maybe, I don't know if maybe for, for you at the bottom end of your team, it was Kyle Ocposo. Uh, the question is, okay, so if you give up on Ocposo and take this hot hand, in this hot hand doesn't pan out. Will you be able to find something similar in the future? And the answer is probably yes. So I think I'm like, I'm going to be a lot more quick to the trigger um, to pick up the hot hand, like in, you know, whatever the bottom of the barrel asset that I have that I can get rid of, I'll do that. But uh, I could be only because I think that you will be able to find throughout the season um, suitable replacements. So yeah, um, unless it's somebody that is like a top line player who, you know, you just know is going to turn it around. Um, I'm definitely willing to part ways. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the start, the smart way to go. I guess it's really tricky to know like when's that exact moment, and you don't know like with someone like Ocaposo, he you know was on the top power play, like you thought that he would be in a good situation, and things really went south. Though I do think he might still be a pretty good sleeper for next year. Like I'm curious, is he a free agent in your league right now? Oh no, in our league, free. I mean, well, we have so many t- players are locked up. Uh, I don't think he's a free agent. He could be. I'm going to double check. We don't actually submit our keeper rosters till a week out. But uh, actually, he might be a free agent, so I'll, I'll take a look. But again, my team sucks this year, so I don't need old guys to, to take up spots. I'm looking for a youth, you know, youth movement. Oh, can't you be like the, I don't know, the Coyotes or something, like make a trade at the trade deadline, like pick up a bunch of old players, hope they do well, and then ship them off for, for assets? But I anyway. guess that's one option, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess the reason why I'm kind of into Ocposo, and I guess we don't need to make this a Buffalo Sabres show, but like just like kind of what you were saying about Nolan Patrick, like he also was going through some tough, like I think it was head issues over the summer, like last summer. So he also didn't really get to train for the season like maybe he normally would. And now if he could get back on the top power play and maybe play with Casey Middlestad on the second line, could be worse. But anyway, okay, Brian, go ahead. I'll ask the next question. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know if, if this is too specific given you have a couple leagues going and it's not in season, but who would be like, just to get a sense of the depth of your league, when you're talking about some of the the choices you're making, who are generally the guy, the kind of guys at the top of your free agent pile? Are they like 45 point forwards? Or is it, is it even worse than that or a little bit better? Oh, I mean, like I said, our league, we have 20, 20 people. We have a 23, actually a 28 man roster plus a 20 man farm system. So if there's like a fourth liner, with some upside, he's, there's a good chance that he's going to be taken in our league. It's extremely deep. So on defense, we're not looking at guys that score 40 points. We're looking at guys that can maybe get 20. So like I had, you know, Joaquim Ryan on San Jose last year, who doesn't have much upside, but in our league, he has some value because it's so deep. Wow. So, so, that, so that's pretty good. Like you, you can go for, for someone who might be a total bust. Uh, and then if they can still get you 20 points, all hope is not lost. So I guess back to some more strategies. We gotta try to you know squeeze as much out of you as we can. Like, does your league have acquisition limits during the season? Because I'd be curious to know how you decide when to make an ad compared to like your limits on the year. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't have limits. But what we do is we have like a waiver wire system where basically it's a priority list. So if you're top priority, you some, some, sometimes you want to hold on to that and wait for a player that you really really want because once you make that pick, you go to the bottom again. So you're at like number twenty. So yeah, you can be as active as you want. But again, like if you do have one of those top two, three spots and you're kind of waiting on a player to get a call up maybe or, you know, get a new role or something like that, uh, you might be like a little more cautious about, you know, um, just picking somebody random. You don't want to like waste that pick, especially if you have like one of the top two, three waiver wire picks. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like like, every single acquisition is considered a waiver wire pick. Like does it just like happen once a day or something? We do that on a weekly basis. So like, because again, part of the reason we, we used to do it where you could do it every day, but it just gives such a big advantage to people that don't have jobs and that are like, you know, super on the ball, like, you know, hour to hour. So what we did was we, we figured it'd be, you know, fair for the league to just have a full week where you can decide like what players you're going to want for the next week. You, you make your waiver claims. And then if like two people made a claim for the same person, whoever's higher in the priority list will get that player. Oh, so how, like, what type of player are you? Like, do you tend to hold your priority for a long time? Because even for people not in such deep leagues, like even leagues where you could pick up free agents, but, you know, sometimes a player gets dropped and then those guys go onto waivers. Like some people really want to hold that top waiver priority all the way to the end of the season to get a real gem, while others are just happy to get, if they could improve their team, they'll just do it and assume they'll get back to the top at the end. Like, which way do you tend to lean? I like to wait a little bit. You know, I think early season, you know, there's a lot of players, like say the first month, 
that are going to get like a nine game tryout. And, you know, a lot of times you're wasting a pick. Like if you, you know, wasted a pick on someone like Cody Glass, for example, you know, and he got like, he got into a couple games, like chances are he's not going to stay with you for the whole season. So you've just wasted a selection. I, I would wait a little bit till November, December by around Christmas and see like, okay, is this guy even going to be on the team or not? All right, let's get into, you said you're in a head-to-head league. So we're looking at weekly matchups, right? We do, no, we do nightly. Like I said, we have like, um, we'll do like every night that there's six or more NHL games. We, okay. ice a, we ice a roster of like six forwards, four defensemen, and one goaltending team. And then it's head-to-head uh, goals and assist points where you like either get a win or a loss on the night. Um, and we play like, you know, it ends up being about three, four games a week. We have like an 80-game season in, in season. And then, of course, a playoff. And it's four divisions of five. It's it's like it's it's I think it's the coolest fantasy league in the world, but it's definitely like um, you have to be engaged, um, like which I'm sure is true for you guys and the leagues that you do, because you guys, you know, definitely study. But uh, I, I love the fact that, you know, you have so many decisions to make throughout the week and, you know, creating lineups and making adjustments on a day to day basis. Right. So, okay. So you're making a lineup and you have a, you have a player who like has no business being on a 10 game point streak, but there he is. Or you have a player who's generally scoring uh, like just over a half point per game pace, but is super reliable that way. Which way do you tend to lean if you're, if you're filling that last spot in your lineup on a given night? Oh, I think it probably like overall, if you know, if you're close it like going with a hot hand probably makes more sense. I typically like to look at matchups, like, you know, who are they playing? So if you were in a weekly league, you know, I would look at like, okay, are they, they, so this week they're up against Buffalo, Montreal and the Islanders. Okay. I want whoever, I want that player versus somebody who's going to be against like, you know, playing against LA, you know, um, you know, Vegas or some, you know, some other amazing teams like that. (laughs) Of course. Okay. Yeah. I guess, yeah. How much of uh, your fantasy strategy is based on you going with players from teams you like, like, do you want to get players on your team that you could cheer for? Or do you not care about that? Yeah, I do, but it's like I don't like to go out of my way. Like on the Vegas Golden Knights, I mean, the only player I've had is like it's kind of funny, but it's Thomas Nosek, who is like a fourth line grinder. Who this year might actually get moved up to the third line. There's some, you know, there might be some room for him. But uh, yeah, so I, 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 I think it's a mistake. You know, in my league, most of my people, most of my people in my league are from Toronto, so I typically avoid Toronto players because they just are way overvalued. Um, you, you know, and and there's just like no point because there's just like homers who are going to fall in love with anybody Toronto and overpay. Another great fantasy tip, which is know the hometowns, uh, the places or, or the places in which the people in your league reside or connect to with their heart the most. This is built off an argument, Elon and I, Daniel, actually you're a perfect guy to ask. What's your hometown? Well, I guess my hometown would be Toronto, but I do live in Las Vegas for the last 20 years. Elon? Boo. <laughs> yeah, that's a win for me. So Elon and I had this whole argument on the Almanac. Spoiler for anyone who's not there. Elon, I can't, it must have been, oh, it was, it was in Toronto. the Toronto chapter. Because you said that you're talking about your hometown Toronto, but you're born in Ottawa and you've lived in Toronto for what? Like eight years? Like six years. But I like to think that home is what you make, you feel, what feels like home to you. Like if Daniel feels at home in Toronto, fine. If he feels at home in Vegas, I feel like you should be able to choose. You don't have to have Brian Calm being a jerk about it, like <laughs> correcting not... all of your words. I just, I just, you know, you you work so hard, like you're, you're wearing Leafs hats, 
You do, you're being such a Toronto guy. Just don't want you to forget your roots. <laughs> I don't even have a Leafs hat, but okay. So Daniel, maybe before we get into talking about the Golden Knights in particular, because you razzed us all year last year on Twitter as we were stubborn, stubbornly, and I want to say mostly Brian, actually stubbornly saying they're not going to be able to keep up these percentages and they're going to slow down eventually. Before we get to that, like, do you have any specific player, like any good sleepers? Like just like, you know, your, your chance to sort of wow everyone with an awesome pick that then next year it's going to be like, oh man, Daniel was so brilliant for coming up with this guy. Yeah, well, I don't know that it's actually much of a sleeper anymore. And, you know, a lot of people around the league are talking about, you know, him elevating his game. And I think it's Alex Tuck on the Vegas Golden Knights because with with David Perron and James Neal moving out, that opens up space for Tuck. And Tuck is a unique player because he's he's got size, but he can also really skate. And he can, he can you know, he has a high skill level. And I think this year, playing with Stasny, who is much more of a pass-first kind of guy, you know, a responsible, you know, two-way center, um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for Tuck to put up a lot more goals than he did last year and, uh, and you know, be one of the leaders uh, on this team for the next few years. And what people forget about Alex Tuck or don't realize when they look at him is his beard growth is that of like a 30-year-old person, but he is he's still a young guy, right? This, he, he's going to be 22 years old this year, so there's a lot of room for growth. He has that pedigree too. And, uh, you know, I don't think as many people are talking about Alex Tuck as they should. I projected him higher than Elon in our uh, almanac. So there's a there's an interesting case, Elon, where I am. Uh, I, I can call myself optimistic about a Vegas Golden Knight. So uh, so trying to shed that label. So speaking of the Vegas Golden Knight. Well, Actually, I'm curious to ask. Oh, well, I also want to ask, speak of the Golden Knights, speak of Alex okay. Tuck. Daniel, what's your sense of the top power play there? Like, do you think Tuck could get there? He was actually playing on the top unit with, like, you know, Marcia So and Carlson and, and Smith, like, for a lot of the time, which I guess wasn't really the top unit since they went pretty 50 50. But now with this year, now that Neil and Perron are gone, Brian and I have sort of been uh, guessing that maybe they're going to give more time to that Jonathan Marcia So unit. And I'm curious to know who do you think the fourth forward will be there? Will it be Stasny or will it be Tuck or maybe some Dark Horse? Well, I think we only really have one real solid like net front presence, and it's Alex Tuck. He's six foot five, and you know he's only twenty two, as you said. And I think that he will slot into that spot. Um, and Stasny, that'll be interesting too, because um, you know it'll see. I, I don't think Stasny's going to have as big a year offensively. I think he's going to be an upgrade for the team, like as far as like hockey goes. But in terms of stats, I think I would like warn people away from you know putting too many eggs in the Stasny basket because I don't see him being counted upon to um, put up a lot of points. I do think overall also, like, this team's changing a little bit. You know, you know, when it started, it was kind of like a four-line team. It's becoming more of, like, a top-line team and then a defensive second line and a defensive third line and a defensive fourth line, which is, is different. Because last year, of course, you know, we had Neil and Perron that were, you know, putting up numbers, but they were not necessarily all that defensive responsive, defensively responsible. So the power play, I think Tuck will work his way into that role. Again, depending on the system and how they want to play, but seems to me that a solid power play is going to have a guy that just stands in front of the goalie and uh, causes some havoc. Zooming out to the, to the bigger picture for Vegas in 18-19, like you said, a lot of change. You've got Neil and Perron at the door. Stasny's coming in. Those are probably the biggest items. Like, How good are the Golden Knights going to be in 2018-19? Should we believe that they can repeat what happened in 1718? Well, there's going to be some issues, right? Obviously, you guys are aware of Nate Schmidt getting 20 games. So we start yeah. off the season with a guy who was our biggest minute muncher, you know, not going to be in the lineup. Uh, I think their first month is going to be very difficult. They're playing on the road a lot, and they are 
playing really tough teams. They're playing, you know, in Washington, they're playing Pittsburgh. So uh, I think the fan base is going to have to have some patience that first month because um, I would be happy if they have like a winning record, frankly, in October, because again, you're, you're without Schmidt. I also think the potential here, if they do have kind of a rocky start in October, this actually makes your, your boy, Eric Carlson, even more likely of a fit to come over to Las Vegas and, 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 you know, somehow make a deal with the worst GM in the league, or maybe not. Cause maybe you got Montreal Bergevin. Well, <laughs> but you, yeah, you I think the like, two prime suspects there. Yeah. But, uh, so it, it I think it'll be interesting. That first month is going to be uh, a real telltale sign. I, I again, I think they're going to struggle that first month. Again, you have a lot more moving parts and another big contributor to this team or he's going to have to be to fill a role. And he did a poor job of it because of a shoulder injury and whatnot, but that's Thomas Tatar. You know, he came over from Detroit. He only had six points in like 20 games and just, he really didn't fit in. He was healthy scratched in the playoffs. But again, now that this role is kind of opened up for him, he could be on Stasny's left side. Stasny plays a little, you know, he's willing to slow down the game a little bit. That might help Tatar to some degree play like, you know, more at his pace. So there's a lot of question marks, I think, with this team. And of course you have to like, it's, there's always the, you know, the first year kind of like uh, glitz and glamour is gone. And now it's like teams come to Vegas and like, okay, this is a good team. No partying at a strip joint till 7 a.m. before we're playing the Vegas Gold Knights. You have any uh, any info, any inside info as a Vegas local that you can share with us on that? Yeah, I I know for a fact. There's two. It was funny. Right before the playoffs, Evander Kane was like in the high limit slots, and he had four women who I believe were the, uh, working there, and he was drinking till late. Also, the first month when Chicago and Winnipeg came, I know for a fact that like I, I won't name the names, but they were at Spearmint Rhino, which is an adult establishment, till about 8 a.m. Uh, the night before a game uh, in Vegas. And again, I think a lot of that first month, teams just didn't take the uh, Vegas School Night seriously and, uh, you know, came in and had uh, – you could, you could see, like, when Chicago played that first month, they, like, they looked hungover. It was, like, not till like, <laughs> the third period, like, okay, guys, we have to try and play hockey now because it was, like, you know, the, they were sweating it out. But you could just – it just seemed like they were, like, playing in slow motion. That's amazing. Uh, I, I imagine that, yeah, m- maybe teams won't be trying that quite as often. And But all credit to Vegas for taking advantage of that early home schedule. It's funny because, like you mentioned, schedule as being something that might get in the way for them this year. But I was saying the same thing last year in October. They started on the road, then they played a whole string of home games, and they crushed it. And I was I was trying to be all smart over here saying, just wait until they go on this crazy road trip where they're playing like 10 out of 12 on the road. It's going to be vicious. It's going to crush them. They won't have the Vegas, like not just home ice advantage, but home city advantage working for them. And the magic will run off. And, and to their credit, they also kept up through that. So they'll have to weather that storm, that schedule storm again in 1819. No question about it. I mean, like you mentioned that storm that they faced. They also faced it with like, a fourth string goalie in Maximilian yeah. Lodasso, which is crazy. Yeah, that was just such a strange year last year because also all the stuff at the start with Shipashov and how Theodore was in the minors. Like, it just looked like they were such a mess, but then they were so amazing and, and the goalies all got injured. And actually for, I think there's a little bit of a strategy thing we can maybe tease out of what you've been saying about how they might struggle early with a tough schedule. Maybe that'll be a good time to buy low on someone like Marc-Andre Fleury. Like maybe not as much for you in a deep dynasty league. He's getting up there in age, though of course that didn't bother Vegas to sign him to a three-year contract extension. But like, I like the idea of trying to see which teams are going to struggle early. And then those are the types of players you can go after. Cause maybe Fleury's going to struggle, maybe like Marshall or someone, and maybe you could get them for cheap in a trade. 
I think that's a good good play actually because I really do think that like you know even guys like William Carlson right you you guys have referenced several times his ridiculous shooting percentage like you know if he comes back crashing down to earth and is like at you know eight to ten percent in October um, you know he you know his his stock might fall where you know you could pick him up and then maybe you know they'll turn things around because I really do believe in that first line you know they do have a lot of chemistry but um, without the support of that you know offensively at least. The second line, I think, you know, teams are really going to key in on the more. So it'll be a bigger challenge for them this year to repeat last year's performance in terms of numbers. I'll go back to the power play for a minute. Having watched as much Vegas hockey as you have, we were having a discussion about whether Shea Theodore or Colin Miller is the best fit to run the top unit. And I, I just saw some news uh, earlier today about Shea Theodore's contract maybe coming along. So I'm wondering once that's signed, maybe we'll get a clue. But but who do you think is best suited in that top power play quarterback role between the two? Well, Brian Daniel already answered. He thinks it's Eric Carlson, and he's going to be there. Like a <laughs> well, I mean, Eric Carlson would be a, a prime tar- target for that spot. You know, I'm really impressed with, like, Colin Miller's shot. Like, he had – I don't remember what his shooting percentage ended up being, but it wasn't nearly as good as I would have expected. He had, like, a lot of near misses, a lot of posts, and I think, like, you know, uh, a power play Vegas isn't necessarily a team that thrives in like playing, playing in the zone. They're, they're a big transition team and they, they have gone through periods where the power play really, really struggled. So I think having a guy like Miller blasting it from the point, um, is worthwhile. But of course, you know, shade Theodore, one thing he's great at is he makes plays out of nothing. Like in standstill situations, he can beat a guy and open up space and like, He's definitely a liability defensively at times, but again, on the power play, that shouldn't be too big of a concern. So it's a tough one. I think it really depends on stylistically what, you know, what are you going for? And if you're going for, you know, you know, a a Miller blasting it in and, you know, trying to get some rebounds, uh, then I would say Miller. But if you're trying to like be creative and move the puck more like a Pittsburgh type uh, power play, then Theodore would be a better man for the job. All right, continuing to bounce around the Vegas lineup. We mentioned Marc-Andre Fleury briefly. He signed that huge contract uh, committing to, oh my gosh, I should have the numbers up if I'm asking this question, but it was like four or five more years at $5 million at his age, and it only kicks in after this season. Maybe it was only three years. Uh, what do you? What were your thoughts on it? It, it was frowned upon by many to, to be signing a goalie past essentially the age of 35 based on a season where he was fantastic and he deserved to be the face of the franchise. And like, he fulfilled that role so well, but as a Vegas fan, are you, are you content with the amount of cap space that's being spent on what will be a a pretty old goalie with a lot of miles on him by the end of that contract? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think Fleury certainly earned it right with his performance this year. And it's three more years in addition to the year that he already had, you know, the number is a little bit high. It's something like seven or million or something like that or eight, but, um, you know, the, the cap will, you know, be raised by then, um, salaries will increase. And I also think that Vegas is in, in good shape for the next couple of years in terms of the salary cap. Um, so even if you are overpaying, I think you're overpaying slightly in his last year. I don't think it's that bad of a deal. It is definitely pricey, but I think it sets a good precedent for the league when you're a GM and an owner who says, listen, if you play well here, you'll get paid, you know, and a lot of people were questioning whether or not James Neal was getting a raw deal and David Perron weren't, but like, you know, and, or William Carlson who went to arbitration. But I think like, you know, they, they proved with the flurry contract that Vegas is a place that, you know, they'll be loyal to you if you, you know, you play hard. And I, I, I agree with you guys that it's probably too much money for a goalie of that age, but flurry's had a resurgence, you know, thinks, I think part of it was like going to a sports psychologist. Cause you know, there was a time where it felt like flurry's career was over and it was, yeah. you know, he was on a downswing, but like 
he's come back and I think he's got really got his head on right. And um, he loves it here. And I, you know, he's in good physical shape and, you know, goalies now they can play into their forties. It's not, um, it's not unheard of. You look like, look at a guy like Roberto Luongo. Yeah, I think that like these contracts are interesting. Like, first of all, I'll correct Brian. So yeah, it was seven million each year for three years, beginning in the nineteen twenty season. His age is thirty five to thirty seven season. But yeah, like there was recently this Blake Wheeler signing where Winnipeg extended him for a long time. And yeah, obviously people are going to say, yeah, that's going to be a lot of money to spend on him when he's like in his late thirties. But in the meantime, like if they didn't sign Wheeler, maybe if Vegas didn't sign Flurry, then at the end of the season they could walk for nothing as unrestricted free agents. So I feel like sometimes a team. I don't know, like, let me know if I'm being too, like, naive about this, but I feel like sometimes a team has to spend just in order to make sure they could lock that player in and have them for even just the next two years, and they'll worry about it after that, because I'm sure Vegas, after being in the cup finals, they want to try to get back there, like, Winnipeg especially, like, this is such an amazing window for them, so why not go for it and make that big contract signing? Like, oh, yeah, we had that discussion also about Evander Kane, right? He made that huge seven-year, $7 million contract, and while you think, like, that's a lot to spend on a guy who's maybe not totally proven, but at the same time, San Jose needed a first line players. Like, what do you think about these like long contracts for players that are going to take them into their mid late thirties? Well, speaking of that Blake Wheeler contract specifically, I think Winnipeg's window is small and, and you wouldn't think so with a you know, relatively young team, but I think, you know, from a salary cap perspective, they're going to be facing big issues in a couple of years. You know, when, when guys like Patrick line, you need to get paid and there's a whole bunch of like big studs that they have that, you know, this contract, which was like 42 million over five years, for Blake Wheeler, while it's certainly worth it right now, you know, you question down like year four and five, um, you know, is, is that going to be an albatross around their neck? And, uh, you know, because, you know, again, when players age at, at forward position, a guy like him, speed is going to be important. Um, is he going to be able to, to keep up at that age? Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's scary. But the problem is if you want good players and you want to, they want term, you know, they're going to want to get paid and they're going to want to get like, you know, you know, more than a two, three year contract. So, you're left in a situation where as, you know, a GM and an owner, you're like, okay, sometimes you have to make some gambles and take some risks. And, you know, Blake Wheeler's certainly performed. And, you know, the hope is he can continue to do it for four to five more years. All right. One more biggest question before, before we move on. And we're just about to wrap up to, uh, you mentioned you have Tomas Nosek on your roster. Do you, who, who's your highest projected Tomas for next year on Vegas between Nosek and Tatar? Tatar didn't seem like he was going anywhere during the playoffs. Well, it has to be Tatar because Tatar is, they're going to give Tatar every opportunity. We gave up a first, second, and a third round pick to bring Tatar in. And uh, as much as Gerard Gallant is the man who's going to make the ultimate personnel decisions, you know, George McPhee is sweating that deal because, you know, he doesn't want to have egg on his face and, you know, have Tatar not, not pan out. So I think they're going to give Tatar every opportunity to, you know, play that second line left wing role with Stasny and possibly Tuck on the right side. You know, the question then is like, what exactly is going to happen to poor uh, Eric Halla? You know, the guy had 29 goals last year, 55 points. I don't see a universe where he can repeat that now because he's essentially, you know, lost his job and where there's no real clear spot for him to fit in. All right. So moving away from Vegas now, I guess we have to eventually. But I, I think Tatar is very interesting. I'm Like, I feel like he could be a guy who could end up in the top six and be on a really nice line. Like, you know, like with Stasny and Tuck, and like you say, that would be really crappy for Haula, who had such a great breakout last year. But at the same time, you could also imagine Tatar just getting benched because he was benched last year in the playoffs. And like, no matter what they traded for him, if they weren't willing to play him in the playoffs in like the Stanley Cup finals, then, you know, but then maybe there was injury concerns. But yeah, okay, moving away from Vegas, like who's your team for next year? Daniel, like if you had to make a cup prediction, have you thought yet through who you're going to go with? Well, I mean, the buzz is pretty clear amongst the NHL players. They were just recently, you know, asked this question. And the team that came 
to most people's lips was the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I don't know that I agree with that. I think that, you know, John Tavares is going to make them a lot better, but I feel like they continue to address concerns in the wrong area. You know, bringing in Patrick Marlowe at 36 years of age, when they have a pipeline of forwards that are suitable and they know they're good enough, what they don't have is a depth of defense. And um, I know, you know, Freddie Anderson has been good in terms of, you know, fantasy hockey, but I don't know that, you know, he's a guy that I trust necessarily to, to make a Stanley Cup run uh, and a lot of holes on defense. So I don't know that Toronto is primed yet. I think maybe they're like a couple years away. Uh, the team that, you know, you look at and think like, Jesus, they're stocked is the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? They didn't uh, play quite as well as they needed to in the, in, in the playoffs last year, but, uh, you know, they're even better this year. And I think that uh, if I had to pick one team right now, um, also, you know, Tampa, they're basically like Tampa, Boston, and Toronto have it so easy because they're all like locked in for top three spots. Maybe Florida can push one of those teams out of the top three, but like the rest of that division is like Detroit, Buffalo, Ottawa, Montreal, like absolutely potentially four of the worst teams in the entire league. So that gives them like a little bonus regular season wise. But as you guys know, what does regular season mean in the end? Not, not that much. It's all about, um, you know, showing up when playoffs come around. Yeah, I I know all too well about that. And, you know, you say that it's like lucky for them, but also it's kind of unlucky, right? Because two of those teams are going to have to play each other in the first round and get bumped right away. Yeah, that's a horrible system. I mean, really, it really is. Like Phil Kessel's a good friend of mine, and we've talked about that a little bit. And it's kind of absurd that, you know, you know, not this season, but the year before, the top three teams in the entire league were Washington, Pittsburgh, Columbus, and two of the three top teams in the entire league had to face each other in the first round. So I don't think the system works. I would rather see like, I would, you know, this is an extreme idea, but I would much rather see if you are the one seed, you get to pick your first round opponent. Yeah. Then the second seed picks. It's like, it would be so dramatic. I mean, how many shows we could do about that? And like the disrespect of like, you know, taking the, the, the three seed instead of the eight seed, because you feel like you match up against them better. I think it would create a lot of like really fun rivalries and it actually would make the regular season even more valuable because sometimes you end up playing an eight seed like a few years ago, the LA Kings who nobody wanted to play. They really, you know, pushed to get in the playoffs and would look, looked good. So, you know, now that number one seed kind of like, you know, shrinked in terms of value. I think being able to pick your opponent would be one of the coolest changes they could make. Yeah, I would love that so much. Like, there was so much drama around when Vegas was doing the expansion draft and all the teams had to expose, you know, who they're protecting and who they're exposing. It was so fun. And, like, that would just be crazy if they had a big press conference and the teams got to announce who they're going to play. Like, I'd love that so much. And you're right, the system is so weird. It's it's also the same system that helped the Senators get to the conference finals a couple of years ago playing against, like, the Rangers in Boston, who, like, Boston was having injury troubles and stuff. Though, you could make an argument that maybe that uh, also killed the Sens because that's what gave them the confidence to think that they were good enough that they should trade for Matt Duchesne and give up like all of their future for him. And now next year they're going to come last in the league and they're not going to get Jack Hughes. But anyway, I'm digressing again. Uh, so well, you said my Matt Duchesne. I think it's kind of funny. I do think it's funny that he left Colorado because he wanted to go to a contender. Uh, like the, <laughs> the saddest story in hockey right now is, is poor Matt Duchesne's career trajectory. No, but Matt Duchesne now, like all these lies, you know, like I saw in Roto World recently, like, oh, I'd love to resign with the Sens. But obviously he has to say that because he might be on the team all year. He doesn't want to come out to the media and be like, this team is terrible. I wish I could not be here. But Did you hear that he uh, like he saw someone wearing a Sens cap or his, or his jersey or something? Maybe it was at a Tim Hortons and he got out of his car and like said hey and thanks and like signed something for them there's this whole whole story going around recently about matt duchene just loving ottawa being like the the best he's he's like the mark andre fleury of ottawa 
how Flurry was an ambassador for Vegas. He's he's trying to take up the mantle. Good on him. But uh, yeah, really Taking rough. From Mike Hoffman and his wife. Uh, yeah. yeah, better better ambassador than than Hoffman. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it was a slow news day in Ottawa. Do you guys get that in Vegas? I probably not. Right, like some Vegas player. Oh, Riley Smith signed some kid's hat. I feel like that wouldn't be the top news story in Vegas. Yeah, no, the top news stories now are all about the Raiders. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I guess you gave us some good stories about Evander Kane and some people earlier on. But that's pretty cool. I, I wish we could do a whole podcast now just about who you're friends with. If you're good friends with Phil Kessel and any other cool names you could drop and cool, or cool stories you want to share. Well, he, Phil Kessel plays a lot of poker and he comes out to Vegas. I was actually with him when, you know, th- he was talking about how he's probably going to get traded from Toronto. And he was mentioning like, you know, and I was like, well, to where? And he's like, he might be Pittsburgh. And then I looked at him and I'm like, well, you're going to play with Crosby and a Falcon. That doesn't suck. You know? So I'm like, of all, and he kind of shrugged and was like, yeah, I'm, I'd be okay with that. Um, also, you know, another friend of mine on the Leafs is, you know, Tyler Bo or was on the Leafs is Tyler Bozak. Another really good guy. Um, a lot of these guys play poker. And when they come to Vegas, you know, they, they kind of hit me up and want to chat. What's odd and really strange is like, I don't really know anyone on the Vegas golden Knights, which you would think, you know, they live here and I never really like end up running into them except me going to the games. Okay, cool. Like, and Kessel's actually someone that we've been trying to figure out recently. I wonder if you have any inside info, because right, there was all that stuff in the playoffs about how he wasn't able to get on a scoring line, and maybe he wanted to get traded or something. But anyways, it doesn't seem like that's the case. But it is interesting in Pittsburgh. It's also hard to peg like where these players are going to land and how they're going to do. Like Kessel could find himself playing on the third line with Broussard, or like you said, with Crosby and Malkin. Like, Do you think there's any chance that he can keep up his amazing like 90-plus points from last season, or do you think now so- would be a good time to sell high? So the thing about Kessel, right? Like how many guys who play in the third line, which is what he did last year, can say that they scored 92 points in a season? It's just crazy. Like he's, he actually drives the power play. He's the one who runs the power play from that off wall there. Um, and, you know, m- you know, moves the puck. But like he definitely wants to play with Malkin. He feels like, you know, any other team in the league, would he be a third line right winger, right? <laughs> it's just, it's kind of strange. And I get that Mike Sullivan, you know, believes it's spreading the three out gives them a little bit more depth and whatnot. But like, um, I think that Kessel really does feel like he has good, um, you know, um, chemistry with Malkin and would much prefer playing like a top six role. It's kind of strange to have a guy of Kessel's caliber being like on the third line. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but you know, Hey, Sullivan's the coach, right? So he's going to have to make the decisions. But I, I would imagine if I were Phil, I'd be a little bit perplexed at going, why am I on the third line right now? Yeah, I, he's probably, I, Elon, I don't know if you can think of another one, or Daniel, if you can. I, I can't think of another third-line player offhand who is locked into a top power play spot at the same time. Like, that is a very unique situation that uh, Kessel made the most of last year, very impressively. Yeah. And, I like, I, I feel like he can do it all over again. Yeah, I, I think of guys like, I remember Sam Gagne was on that top power play in Columbus when they were really great a couple of years ago, but it was like a pretty rare thing, like with these specialists. Like, wasn't there a guy on Edmonton, Mark Letestu, would somehow be on the top power play, but be a nobody even strength? But yeah, Phil Kessel's yeah. definitely completely out of these guys' leagues. Yeah, like Letestu got on that top unit for a little while, but did nothing with it. Uh, but but good good example. Um, yeah, if Kessel so- is like a savant, just, for, just so I, he doesn't know why he's good at hockey. It's so funny, like I talk to him, like I, I've explained to him why he's good. Cause I've read a lot of different pieces on his specific shot and the unique things that he can do offensively. And he's like, I don't know. Eh? I just play hockey. Right. <laughs> like I just shoot the puck. I'm like, no, no, you realize that you use a whip of your stick. You're able to like, you know, like balance on one leg and really kind of change the shot angles and all this stuff. He's like, I don't know. I just shoot the puck. Eh? It's just amazing to me that he's as good as he is at hockey because it's like, he knows nothing about hockey. It's, it's crazy. He's an amazing elite player, 
but it's pretty clueless when it comes to like, I don't know, the, 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 the minor details of how things work. Love that. Truly a nice guy who tries hard and loves the game. Is his, <laughs> uh, his Twitter profile he used to read. Um, so you mentioned just something before we let you go. You mentioned way back fantasy poker. Is that is that a thing? Am I living under a rock here? Well, I run a league every year for the World Series of Poker. It's actually a $25,000 buy-in. I've been doing it for oh. like seven years where it's during the World Series of Poker and we do an auction draft. You know, everyone picks a uh, team of eight and we get like a 200 bankroll. And I typically go for the highest amount every year because I play all the events. Um, and, you know, you basically want a horse that's going to play a lot of events. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, they also offer a smaller version of that after the fact. So what we do is after the prices have been set for each player, another guy named David Baker who's a poker player, he creates like a $500 league where you can just put together a team based on those prices. And then like, you know, you know, get, you know, you know, take your, just see if you can get lucky with those guys. Okay, so let's say uh, a bunch of NHLers were the guys you could add to your fantasy poker team. Uh, who who stands out to you as a good poker playing NHL player? Do they have to be current or can they be retired? All time. All right, well, so we're going to go with uh, Phil Kessel, Roberto Luongo, for sure. Um, we'll go with uh, um, Paul Correa. Plays a decent amount. Also, Travis Green, the coach of the Wash uh, of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to go with Travis Green. Um, and Jeremy Roenick thinks he's good, but I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't think so. I'm not going to go with Jr. Uh, yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd name pretty close to a team there. I think that's so fun. I would watch that show if there was some NHL players playing poker. We did an event with on Sportsnet where we had like three, four years in a row. We did a charity event where I played with a bunch of poke, uh, you know, hockey players and stuff like that, like Dennis Savard, Wendell Clark, a whole bunch of like heroes that uh, and kessel played one year uh in that as well but mostly it was just guys that were like alumni is there anyone you wouldn't want on your team is that too loaded a question you can no commented away yeah i'm gonna say leo komarov <laughs> what i heard about leo komarov is like leo is big fish <laughs> leo is not very good at poker that's so funny because i feel like a lot of people would also say that about their fantasy hockey teams and, and maybe some people would say that about their nhl teams but not the new york islanders who decided you know oh we lost a virus so at least we could go and get leo komarov <laughs> Since you were talking about Kessel, I just remembered the thing that I loved the most about Phil Kessel was that time after I think it was the U.S. Uh, team in the World Hockey Championships lost, and when he didn't get added to the team, then he like tweeted, "Oh, aren't I supposed to be somewhere today?" Like I remember that cracked me up so much. Oh, that, that you know what? I have a picture. It's my profile picture on one of my profiles. It's a the picture of Phil on the golf course with the Stanley Cup and six hot dogs in in the, uh. in the Stanley Cup because you know he actually he had it. I, I felt like the Toronto media was really brutal to him. Yeah. And they made up stuff. They were not nice to him at all. Like he's not the vocal, like, you know, main center leader guy, but he worked hard and he like, he loved the city. Like he, tra- he trains there. He's there now, you know, in the off season. And I felt like, you know, it's a tough place to play in Toronto and we'll, we'll see how John Tavares handles it now that he's there. I feel like he did end up like Kessel did end up coming out on top of that PR battle. Like I think a lot of people in Toronto still care about him. And I think fewer than ever care about the guy who wrote that article. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Phil Kessel being fat. It's just weird. He's like super fast. He's super strong. He's, you know, you know, if, if you ask guys in the gym, like he deadlifts more than most of them. And uh, he's just a strong, he's just a hockey player's hockey player. Maybe he's not the guy you want, like on the penalty kill, you know, but that's not his role. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's not modeling watches like Henrik Lundqvist, but he still definitely belongs and is, is amazing. He's one of the best players in the league. Man, so Daniel, this has been so great. Like, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. I guess we should wrap up. Is there anything you wanted to plug or, or get out there? 
Yeah, well, so if you got if anyone's interested in learning how to play poker better, I just released the full the full course on masterclass.com. Uh, it's like I basically did a masterclass on poker. It's like 35 videos or so on masterclass. If you've never seen it, it's pretty damn cool. Serena Williams teaches tennis. Usher teaches performance. You know, uh, Steve Martin teaches comedy. I mean, the, the just the elite of the elite in their fields, and you have access to all that if you get like a yearly pass. And you know, I've watched uh, Kasparov's course to learn how to play chess and things like that. So. Um, I'm proud of it. They, they do really high-end work. So if you do want to get better at poker and you play a little bit and want some tips, I, I put a lot of effort into the masterclass. So check that out. Okay. If you want, Daniel, why don't you send me the link and I'll link that at keepingcarlson.com slash poker. And then so anyone who heard that and wants to check it out, just go to keepingcarlson.com slash poker and that'll take you to this masterclass. By, you could be like Boston Rob, learning how to play poker from Daniel Negreanu. It'll be amazing. Um, yeah. So, okay, yeah, with that, I guess we'll wrap up. So we've gone through a whole bunch of fantasy hockey strategies and then some fun Vegas talk and even a little bit of gossip. This has been a great time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Keep up the good work, guys. I'll be listening all season long. Thank you, and please continue to call us out on Twitter, or me personally, for (laughs) anything that you you have a bone to pick with. No, like all you you guys need to learn how to pronounce names. It is unbelievable. <laughs> it is epic. Like the way you guys when you come up with Zadina, what? Who, how did you get to Zadina? It was so strange. I mean, I would like to make a counterpoint and let me know if I'm sounding whiny here or something. But I think this might be a bit of a, a bit of a confirmation bias. Like we we mention a lot of players on every show. I feel like we get most of them right, and then yeah, every once in a while we're gonna miss one. But that's just because you know we've got such a breadth of players that we're covering. Obviously, I'd say you know you're gonna get a two seven hand every once in a while. Am I right? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I'll give you that. But no, Zadina was a bad one because my wife is named Dina, so I should just, now I'll never forget it. Zadina, it's easy. Yeah, I, mean, I feel easy. like if you, if you read it, it looks like Zadina. I don't know if you haven't seen him. <laughs> Obviously, you're you've been paying attention to him since he was a toddler, so you know his name very well. Yeah, yeah. So thanks again, and to everyone listening. Thanks for listening. I guess maybe, Brian, you and I will record a little stinger after to remind you about different ways you could support the show. But for now, let's cue that outro music, and we will be back at you with another regular episode, another fun interview, actually, coming up in a couple days. But I'll keep it a secret. You'll see it in your podcast feed. So thanks, everyone. And thanks, Daniel. Bye. Thanks, Daniel. You got it, guys. It was fun. Hey, Brian, you still here? Wait, yeah, yeah, of course I'm still here. All right, well, why don't we just take two minutes, start the timer. We're going to tell you all what's going on at Keeping Carlson headquarters. Big season coming up, lots of shows in the works. But, of course, we want to remind you all that we have our almanac that we released, the first ever NHL audio almanac, 32 chapters long. We're very proud of it. You can check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. It's like a fantasy guide for your ears. You don't have to sit down, find time to read this thing. You can listen to it in the car, doing laundry cooking food, whatever you like to do. <laughs> we talked about every single fantasy relevant player on every team. It's a lot of fun. I think you'll like it. Also, the sign-up deadline for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League is like today, or maybe it's past, but we're going to give you a break. Like, maybe we'll let it go up until like maybe the end of the weekend at the latest. But like you've got to sign up ASAP if you want to play in the best fantasy hockey league against the best competition that you'll ever play against, except maybe if you're in Daniel Negreanu's league. It sounds like he's got a lot of cool people that he's playing against. But if you're interested in that, you could go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You get free membership to the couple if you're a patron of Keeping Carlson. Also for your $5 a month patron pledge, you also get a bunch of other perks, monthly patron cast, access to our patron-only Facebook group, show notes after every episode. And a 20% discount on the aforementioned Almanac. So like your first month of patronage, if you buy the Almanac, pretty much pays for itself.
All right, so with that, Brian, let's cue the outro music once again. Remember, keepingcarlson.com slash patron, keepingcarlson.com slash almanac, also keepingcarlson.com slash poker if you want to check out Daniel Negrano's course over on Masterclass. But okay, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed our interview. Tweet at us. Let us know what you thought. Tweet at Daniel. Ah, this was so exciting. Until next time, keep on keeping Carl San, unless you trade him to Vegas. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.